Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a great, great, great day here in Montreal. I am very excited. It's been unbelievable here running into so many great people. And normally I like to come to Montreal with a plan of what's going to happen and set things. And this time I said I'm going to set a few things, but I want to see which old friends I see along the way and see if I can get them to doing this podcast so they can sit in my room slip into an unidentified coma and then come out a few times and mention some good stories about their life that are inspirational. And today, my friends, I have a guy who is one of the most legendary comedians in the history of my generation or any generation. And I'm talking about George Wallace. And it's going to be a great day. Before we start, I want to thank you so much for all the things that you guys have done for this show. It's because of you that we're doing what we're doing and all the things that have happened. It is all due to you. Thank you for your support, your letters, your emails, your tweets, and all the good word all through this festival. I can't even believe how many times that I've been stopped, the people that I've been stopped by, and it's just... I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm speechless. It is really humbling, and I'm so grateful it would never happen without any of you guys. Also, if you're on the website, theberrycats.com slash podcast, please click the Amazon banner and buy all your products from there. And listen, it's great. You get all your products. They don't charge anything extra. And Amazon, for some reason, they give a little commission to the Jewish Bar Mitzvah Fund. It's beautiful. 
And so my kids will get their bar mitzvah money from your Amazon donations, which doesn't cost you any money. And what's great is five years later, they'll be using that money to buy Christian Louboutins for their girlfriends. So it's a good thing. All right. I always look at my guests and I never know what I'm going to say. And I just go with the flow. And I'm looking at George Wallace and this is what I feel. I feel George Wallace is one of the most warm and kind and lovable and huggable and nicest, generous people in this business. A guy who wants to comment on me saying that and wants to make some kind of joke to diffuse what I just said and to desecrate what I just said about him, but I'm not going to allow him to do it. I am shutting off his mic and I am just giving him all the compliments I can and I'm not just saying it. Uh, When somebody sits across from me, they sit across from me and if there's anything you know about me, I tell... (laughs) the truth about my guest. I will never hold back. I will always go toe to toe. I will always name names and tell stories that I think are relevant. And there are many, many people, there's 14 to be exact, who probably won't do the show because they're upset about something that I said or a story that I told that is common knowledge in the business, but they weren't so happy that I rehashed it. But that won't be happening here with George Wallace because, let me tell you something, those of you in the comedy profession, outside of it, and in any other place in any business in the world, it's very rare, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, who knows, work in a library, manage a 7-Eleven, and you have people working as employees, it's very rare that you find one person who somebody never says a bad word about, never, ever disrespects them, never says, ah, God, that's fucking George Wallace. He's a hack. God, I can't stand that guy. He's a phony. He's a bad guy. He says one thing, but he doesn't say another, and he does these horrible things behind my back. He's a passive-aggressive guy. No one in my entire life from the day I started in this business that I knew who George Wallace was until I sit before him right now would ever say a bad word about George Wallace. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, people like George Wallace have 40-year careers and other people that George Wallace started with, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of comedians are now selling cars working in those 7-Elevens, maybe doctor's offices or lawyer's offices. But George Wallace, still relevant, still kicking ass, still carrying money in the palm of his hand to give me after the show for paying me off about this, and still coming up to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival after 40 years and still getting the call to come up and work with people like Kevin Hart and Louis C.K., and Louis Black, and Aziz Ansari. Show me who you're with, and I'll show you who you are. And that is George Wallace. So that's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing I want to point out is when I first started watching comedy, I remember I used to come home early from school, and I used to watch shows like the Mike Douglas Show, who used to have a daytime show. Mike used to put comedians on. One of the first comedians I ever saw during the day that made me laugh, George Wallace. 
And I remember a joke he did one time. I'll never forget this because it's amazing what this guy can do and how he can figure out a way to keep relevant, keep creating new and unique material, but also take material that he might have done from 30 years ago or such and figure out ways to recreate it, make it relevant and make it fun and make the people happy in other generations. So in 1980, I see him do a joke, a little political joke. He's not a political comedian, but sometimes he likes to say a word or two about what's happening in the world. And I'll never forget, he said, I'm in New York City, everybody, and I'm in Central Park. And a guy comes up to me from behind me, and he puts a gun to my head. I think he's going to mug me. He says, Carter or Reagan? Which one you want? And I looked at him and I said, go ahead, shoot me. <laughs> then 20 years later, I'm watching Letterman. 20 years later, I'm watching Letterman. He's doing this killer set. Amazing. All this new stuff, this new branded name. 20 years later, he's still killing it. And the material I'm blown away by. And then in the middle somewhere... He just slips something in and he says, it's dangerous here in New York. I was walking through Central Park today. Guy came up to me and mugged me. He pointed a gun to my head. He said, who do you want, Bush or Gore? And I looked at the guy and I said, go ahead, shoot me. And I laughed my ass off because I saw how he was able to not be afraid to take certain material he did reuse it for another generation to enjoy and so that's the one time where you say to yourself my god that's acceptable in comedy but why don't more people do it why don't more people get to show them and i think back then there wasn't as much internet stuff youtube so you couldn't really see stuff now a comedian goes on and does a special and they don't want to repeat anything they don't even want to do anything that's similar but back then, this is the only way you could do it and show people from different generations what you were doing. And I thought that was so amazing. And I just saw George the other night. I went to a Blake Griffin show, of all people. Blake Griffin was out here at the festival. Great guy. Incredibly funny guy. He was doing stand-up hosting. People loved him. Another guy. So wonderful. I'm doing a FaceTime with my son in the green room, just saying goodnight to him. And Blake Griffin comes through after the thing, and he hears me tell my son I love him, and he calls my son's name, and I turn the phone around, and he does a FaceTime with my son for like five minutes, and I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. And I realized as I was walking home what Blake Griffin has in common with George Wallace. Nice guy, accessible, tall, good-looking, cut-up, ripped. Okay, all right, five out of six. Okay, anyway, so if there's anything to be gleaned from today's cold open, it's the fact that if you want to do well in this business, if you want to do well in any business, any business you're in at all, anywhere in the world, be a guy who people love. Don't be an asshole. Be a guy who people love to hear what he has to say. Be a guy who stands tall, is kind, generous, sweet, giving. Be somebody when you leave the room with them and you walk home, you say to yourself, holy shit, 
I can't believe what an amazing guy that is. And I can't believe that I just saw the words that this guy said on stage and they are just as strong or stronger than they were in 1980 when I first saw them. And if you can be somebody out there in the world that really can be that for somebody, be that for a group of people, be that for the people in your office, work so hard. This guy, George Wallace, carries a legal pad everywhere he goes. From the day I saw him, God knows, 35 years ago or 30 years ago, he's carrying a legal pad with writing on it, and he's still doing it. You know what that means, everybody? He's working hard. He's always thinking. If there's anything that comes in his mind, he's always writing it down because he always wants to be the best representation of himself, and he is. And I guarantee you, if you live by these qualities that George Wallace has that I've explained today, you will have the kind of long, powerful, respected career that he's had. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away.
Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. I got George Wallace, and I'm going to introduce him. I got a long introduction. This guy's had a long career. I've tried to edit it down, failed miserably. So just, if you can, put the intro on one and a half speed, and then we'll get to the next thing. It'll be all good. I'll sound like a munchkin. It'll be beautiful. All right, George Wallace is an award-winning stand-up comic and renowned Vegas headliner, having also established a successful TV and film career over the last 40 years. Born in Atlanta, George shared the same name as segregationist Alabama Governor George C. Wallace, posing a unique situation for the budding African-American humorist. As a child, Wallace was nicknamed The Governor. Though his love for comedy was evident at a very young age, he understood the importance of an education which led to his enrollment at the University of Akron, where he earned his degree in transportation, marketing, and advertising skills that would serve Wallace throughout his entire comedy career. Upon graduation, Wallace moved to New York City in pursuit of his childhood dream. He began working in transit advertising, where he eventually became the company's vice president, selling ad space on the sides of mass transit vehicles while supervising other sales reps. His break came when one of his clients who had opened the comedy club was taken by Wallace's friendly and natural sense of humor. That client asked Wallace to perform at his club. So in 1977, Wallace walked on stage for the first time. He wore a preacher's robe and called himself the Reverend Dr. George Wallace. His routine was improvised and used the same imagery and delivery of the spiritual leaders who had influenced Wallace as a child. One of Wallace's first jobs in the entertainment field was working as a writer for comedian Red Fox from Sanford and Son. On the big screen, he made the most out of small roles in such films as Things Are Tough All Over in 1982, starring Tommy Chung and Cheech Marin, and Punchline with Tom Hanks in 1988 and Sally Field. Wallace's career flourished in the 1990s with parts in films like A Rage in Harlem with Gregory Hines and Forrest Whitaker, and appearances on such TV shows as Seinfeld, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and in 1995, he won the American Comedy Award for the Best Stand-Up Performer, the same year he appeared as the mayor of Gotham City in Batman Forever. In 1991, he was featured in his own HBO One Night Stand and was then named Best Male Stand-Up Comedian at the 1995 American Comedy Awards. At the time, his unique brand of social commentary also became, began to prove popular with radio audiences. And since then, he's had supporting roles in a number of other movies, including the Coen Brothers film, Lady Killers, and Batman Forever, as forementioned. In television, he has had starring guest roles on Seinfeld, Moesha, The Parkers, and The Heat of the Night with Carol O'Connor, Tall Hopes, and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In 2004, Wallace appeared as the headliner star of his own show at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas for a 30-day initial run. Guess what, everybody? Sin City showed his admiration by extending Wallace's contract indefinitely and nicknaming him the new Mr. Vegas. Unlike any other comedy show in Las Vegas, Wallace gave away a number of prizes every night, including CDs, DVDs, diamond necklaces, dinner at the prestigious restaurants, gourmet chocolates, tropical cruises, and even a new car. 
Sorry, Oprah. He did it first. He celebrated his 10th anniversary headlining at the Flamingo in March 2014 and then announced he was closing the show to head back out on the road. Wallace was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2013 Soul Train-centric Comedy All-Star Awards and won Best Stand-Up Comedian at the prestigious American Comedy Awards after four consecutive nominations. As a veteran radio personality, he has also made appearances on the Steve Harvey Morning Show and is a charter member of the Tom Joyner Morning Show. Wallace regularly performs in comedy clubs across the country and is an ambassador for the United States government, performing at military bases all over the world. His first book, Laugh It Off, was published in 2014, is in its third printing. Wallace's most recognized material is his IB thinking lines and jokes about everything from conversational thoughts to political aspirations. Each show he engages in, members of the audience in comedic and comical banter, if provoked, he might even throw out a few of his own signature Yo Mama jokes. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't even know how to tell you how honored I am to introduce my guest today, if he's still awake, George Wallace. Can I talk? <laughs> Let me tell you something. That intro was something I know a lot more about me. I didn't know. I forgot. All of that, you know, the, the jokes, that was, you said something very important, and I just started on this. It happens once a year. This year, listen, you, you talk about, I said, you know what, I got too many good jokes to get rid of them and just let go. I'm going to bring some of these jokes back. For instance, I did a joke 20 years ago that I could balance the budget if I were president. Let's have a garage sale, and let's sell some shit we don't need. Let's sell West Virginia. <laughs> and then I said, you know what? That's too good to throw away. Bring it back 20 years later. Barry, you're right. If it's funny, I try to do evergreen material. If it's funny, it's funny. And it's a whole different generation. You know, every uh, 20 years difference, it's still funny. It's laughter. It's giving back. And it's mine. So what difference does it matter? And then people laugh. And now you can say, let's sell the Trump Towers. Oh, don't don't even do that. Let's, <laughs> the Trump Towers. Let's just get rid of him. You know? <laughs> I hate him. Why did you bring... The conversation was going up great. This idiot. You know, I'm trying to be the greatest bullshitter in the world. That's what I want to be, the greatest bullshitter in the world. And this idiot comes along and making me look like an asshole. He's making me look like an asshole, you know? you Have you listened to him? I mean, all of the smart people... We're in Montreal right now. There must be uh, 3,000 comedians when we came up here. At first, there were like 50, but now there's 3,000. Every time a steel mill closes, there's 5,000 new comedians. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but out of the 3,000, if you find three, what is that, 0.01%, uh, uh, three comedians might like Donald Trump, and they like him just so they can do the jokes. But this guy's an idiot because we know what the social ills are of the country. We know what people like. And everybody can tell you he is a con artist. He's a bullshitter. And he's an idiot. And uh, there's just so much to be said about this stupid-ass guy. How do you really feel? I, I don't even know whether to say I hate him or not. I'm just, how could he be running? What's pissed me off even more are people that are following him. And especially the black people that are following. What is he going to do for, how could he relate to you? 
uh, anybody, all of the people that are following him, he's never been in a grocery store. Yeah, you don't know shit about you know. Uh, he's never been in the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> he's. I was in Piggly Wiggly once. That's the first time I got fired. The manager <laughs> said to me, Wallace, "How long have you been working here? Not counting tomorrow." <laughs> I'm, I'm forget that. I'm over some watermelon when I was a kid in school. Yeah, this guy doesn't relate. He can't relate to anybody. Trust me, and we're gonna do it bigly. I'm gonna do. It. I'm the only guy who can handle this situation. Oh my God. He's the only one in America can do this. And people are buying it. Why are they buying it? Most of them are uneducated first, okay? Some of them are very, you know, there's the assholes, there's idiots, and then there's intellectuals. Now, it could be argued that Republicans believe that they're older, wiser, and more educated than a lot of the Democrats who are younger and don't have the worldliness and don't have as much education as the older statesmen, men and women. So why are these older people who seemingly are educated are feeling the way they do about him and you don't? Mostly they're old and mean. If you were to look in the audience, they're all hateful. They're, they're, they're propagating hate and uh, uh, fear. That's what's going on right now. If you were to, we just, it went a great time. We had two conventions back to back. If you look at their convention and look at the Democrats, did you ever see any joke, any smiles, any, any happiness the two weeks they were on? We, last, we laughing and having fun and people are singing and you got uh, uh, all types of people represented and uh, uh, people with disabilities out there. You got your women, mothers and of uh, deceased kids and you got your firemen and police, just everybody, everybody that they had at the Republican Party, just mean and hateful and a lot of racists. You can tell, see, you can tell a lot of races just by listening to their language. I don't know, you're out of New York or Boston or somewhere like that, and you got that very, the dialect, but when you hear people like Lindsey Graham talking like that, you just, oh, O'Connell, is that his name? Some people, these people are never happy, you just, we can look through them and go, that's a racist bastard. Give me some more names. And the black people that are following, like this idiot, uh, Ben Carson. Now, he's a brain surgeon. How do you become a brain surgeon without a brain? <laughs> what, what did he think? America is going to go from black to blacker? And who does he think he is blinking and shit? He ain't Joel Osteen. <laughs> Up there just blink. And, and he's, how could you be president and if you're going to give a speech and your hands are directly and, and it takes you four hours, just you could go to you could go to Bloomingdale's and get some underwear or whatever and come back and this idiot. That's what people say about my podcast. I heard you do my intro. I did leave. <laughs> I went to Cleveland and nobody wants to go to Cleveland. <laughs> I went to Cleveland. I was in Cleveland yesterday, by the way, and uh, it was in the seventies and. Um, not the temperature, the decade. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the first time you did stand-up comedy where you heard somebody in the crowd say the N-word. Well, when I started, that was very, very uh, common with the N-word because I started right after Richard Pryor, and everybody was using the N-word. It was no problem, to, uh, even some white people. And I even used it once. I did. A, they had a restaurant in Los Angeles that would sell... Uh, it was called Norms, and every Friday night they was at all the fish you could eat for like four ninety five. And I went and told the manager, I said, "You should do this with chicken." He said, "We used to, but niggas were coming in from Chicago." 
747s in the parking lot. But everybody was using the N word. It was it was acceptable. You could say every well, you couldn't say bitch back then. No, that that was bad. That was worse. You can say the N word, but you couldn't get away with bitch or the C word. You couldn't do anything. Uh, uh, but now I, I, it's not a good word to use. And I teach the young kids don't use it. I stopped using it last Tuesday. So it's, <laughs> not, it's not cool, you know. Now I want you to answer this question a different way. Yes. When's the first time? You heard the N-word from an audience member. Oh, yeah, in New York City. When I first started, I was at the uh, comic strip, and I was on stage, and I was just starting. And, you know, New York is the greatest place to work and uh, and learn how to work. So I was up there doing it, and somebody said, uh, you ain't funny, nigga. Get off the stage. So that's how, you know, I said, uh, I said oh, you think I'm bad tonight? Oh, you, they said, you suck. I said, oh, my God, you should have been here last night. I really sucked last <laughs> night. And I, and I liked, at the time, the bantering, that was good, you know, so it didn't bother me. It ain't the first time I heard the N-word. <laughs> when was the first time you heard it? When I was born. No. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor slapped Comedi- your ass. Comedians will say anything to get a laugh, right? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When's the first time did you hear the N-word? Hello, yes. hello. Yes. Are, are you? I'm, uh, who? Am I? Am I? It's only two of us sitting here. I've never told this story before. So, as people know on the podcast, I grew up in an all-white town called Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Yes, it's still all white. Yeah, and my sister had a party when she was in high school. When she was sixteen, when my mom went out of town, our cleaning lady we had a cleaning lady named shirley who was african-american okay the only african-american this is probably in 1970 or 72 yeah she probably still would have been uh, maybe negro then <laughs> maybe and yeah, because black she wasn't black then and she definitely wasn't african-american so she was probably negro had it been a year earlier i would have she would have been colored <laughs> so i know the history of this so this all happened within a 48 hour period I was driving with my mother and my grandmother through Springfield, Massachusetts, and I'm in the back seat. And my grandmother used a word that I, I'd never heard before, and it stunned me. And she said to my mom and her daughter, Barbara, don't go this way. The coloreds are here. Mm-hmm. You don't want to drive where the coloreds are. Right. And that, to me, as I say it right now, it feels worse than the N-word. And then when you're young like that, you're kind of like inquisitive. I want to see what the colors are. When you're young kids, you're like, I'm going through there to see what the colors are. Yes, and so then my sister had a party mm-hmm. when my mother was out of town. And it was one of those parties that, again, I'm 12 or 13. You know the kind of party that a teenager throws when people aren't around. Right. And apparently these kids were doing all sorts of drugs and doing acid and whatever, <sighs> marijuana, whatever it was. And this guy came upstairs, this teenager. And I'll never forget this. He used the N-word, and then he looked at her. And he said, I've killed before, and I'll kill again. And she ran into my mother's room and closed the door and like left me standing there. And she just yelled as she was running, get in your room and lock the door. And we stayed in our rooms while we heard the party going on all night long and tried to cry ourselves to sleep. 
And I don't know why she never called the police. I don't know why I never called the police. But that was the first time I ever experienced that in my life. And I never wanted to experience it again. I would not want to experience that either. That was pretty bad. Pretty bad. That's why you've never told that story. Because it's uh, pretty bad, pretty sad. And... uh, George, when a guest here on the show is really killing and being really funny, I like to bring the room down as low as possible. Well, you did a good job. <laughs> you did a good job with that. Well, that's okay. It's a story that had to be told. I feel safe with you. Well, you are safe. I mean, I'm, I'm real, so I'm a very easygoing person. I understand everything, and I've gone through with what I've lived the experience that you've talked that you're talking about. So, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And so I've, I've lived, you're not telling me anything new. When's the first time you thought to yourself, I could, I could die right now here at this moment. Something could go down here where I could lose my life. I haven't had that experience yet. No, I've been in a good environment all my life. Um, nothing, um, I haven't gone through that yet. Any experience where you used humor to diffuse a horrible situation? I probably have and don't know it because I'm a humorous person and I always interject a joke somewhere. Even when we have funerals, it's all about laughter and happiness. That's I think laughter is healing and it fits in every occasion, no matter what happens. There's a reason to laugh. Has the rarest of occasions ever happened to you where somebody died at one of your shows? I've actually had the uh, opportunity of having five people have heart attacks at my show. Five people had heart attacks in your show? Yeah. At the same show during the same show? No, not at the same show, but different. As uh, During my 40 years, I've had five people to have a heart attack at some uh, major uh, medical emergency. So you're in the middle of your act, and they're carrying the person out on a stretcher. Well, I'm in Caesar's. In, uh, it did happen at Caesar's Palace. Then it happened at the Flamingo. 750 people in the room. Somebody had a heart attack, and everybody, ah! And I knew what was happening. They got to call in the the, the the paramedics. Now I've got to change this whole room over and bring all the attention to me. Where the person had the heart attack, I moved to this side of the room. Eyes on me. Let's uh, eyes on me. Look at me, and I. I'm in command of the show and continue the show while the paramedics was working on the guy and they were talking back and forth to the hospital every now and then I'll say something, repeat what was said on the recorder, but I'm in control. Otherwise, the show would have been over. The show would have been over. I've been in many situations like that. I've been on arenas with 15,000 people. The lights go out, lose uh, power in the room. Flashlight on my face with a bullhorn. Keep rolling. And uh, I never will forget that night. That was with Tom Jones and uh, somewhere in Kentucky. But the promoter gave me, at the time, a flat-screen TV when nobody else had one. I saved him a lot of money. Had I not continued, people would have, you know, it was dark. They would have uh, vacated the building. But I handled that situation. I, I, I'm pretty good at uh, crowd control. Is that the worst situation you've ever had where you changed the tone and made it successful, or was there others? There's others. There's one. The first time I bombed, I bombed badly. It's huge, like as is, is, uh, uh, Trump would say. I did a show. I was just starting in New York. Uh, I forgot the mountains. It's not the Pocono Mountains, but the, the Neville. What do you call those mountains? Grossingers? Uh, the Catskills. Catskills. I'm on stage, and a guy... Then New York City was a manager. I'm only doing comedy less than a year. 
He takes me up there to a show in the main room. And main full of Jews. You know, Jews and blacks are the best audience you could ever get. But if you're not good, they could be the worst audience you could ever get. So I'm on stage, I'm not ready. I'm doing jokes, a lot of stock jokes. You know, one year you don't you can't have an act. And I got not one laugh for 45 minutes. Not one laugh. But I stayed up there. 45 minutes. It was worse than a funeral. I mean, it hurt. I bombed so badly, so it was horrible. I wanted to drive off the Tappanzee Bridge. But I did go back to the Neverly two years later. There was an old Jewish waitress. She had been there for like 80 years, and she tapped me on the shoulder. She says, much better this time, eh? Very nice. (laughs) The difference between the Jewish audience watching a comedian bomb and an African-American audience watching Comedian Bomb is a little bit different. An old Jewish white audience watching Comedian Bomb, they've been taught by their Jewish elders to just be respectful, keep your mouth shut, let them get through it, and then applaud politely after they're done. African-American audience... That is not true. These Jews, they have a thing... What do you call it when you stir your drink? A stir. A stir. And they would take it and they would bang it against the glasses. Ding, 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 ding. Is this all they would do? That's because they wanted you to kiss that old Jewish waitress. Is that what it is? <laughs> and the black, and I told them the difference with the black audience. Black audience, if you don't get a laugh in the first minute, you're booed Ooh, off the stage. In the first minute? I think you better be rolling by 30 seconds. <laughs> by 30 seconds, yeah. Did you ever have a tough time at the Apollo where they boo people? No, I didn't. But you, you know, when you first walk out there and you rub the little stump, uh, I've never had a bad experience there. You rub the stump for good luck. But that's, you had to do that. You had to do that. Or they would boo you immediately. Rub the stump. And I, so I've been blessed. That's what I tell women when I'm with them. Is that right? Yes. Rub the stump. Yes, it's good luck. Well, see, pretty soon, see if you were hung like me, you said rub the branch. <laughs> rub the what? Rub the branch. <laughs> You're coming up a little short. You said rub the stump. I rubbed a branch, you know. Oh man, I rubbed the whole tree. Fantastic! You know? <laughs> I love the that. branch. Yeah. Love the branch. Keep rubbing it; it'll become a, a tree. Keep <laughs> rubbing it. It's a limb. Rub the limb. George, I have to ask you. You've had so many experiences in your life, and so many bizarre things have happened to you. Tell me about one gig you went on with some people who might not have been famous at the time, but are really famous now. And comedians, they're always booked on these hell gigs, and you don't know where you're going, but you know it's not going to be good. Right. Tell our audience about one story where you were with people who were just young comedians then, but now they're superstars now like you, where... Everything went wrong, and talk about the gig and how you guys handled it. I was once on tour in Montgomery, Alabama. George Wallace, Steve Harvey, and a little kid named Ricky Smiley. And so Steve Harvey was just, I was headlining, and Steve Harvey was, we were co-headlining, and Ricky was opening, and uh, we liked to dress. You know, some black entertainers like to put the full suit on and everything like that, just really dress. And Ricky Smiley showed up in jeans. And Steve Harvey went off, made this kid get off the stage, go back home, go to a store, whatever, buy some clothes before you go on the stage. And I went like, wow, it was really horrible the way he treated that kid. You're not going on the stage with us in jeans. And uh, that was kind of tough for me at the time to see that happen. And uh, and now you can't go on the stage unless you, it's required that you have jeans now. <laughs> in most cases. 
Awesome. There's got to be something worse than that happened to me. I don't. I don't know. I'm, right. I'm so blessed, and I've had such good times, and uh, it's all been fun for me. It was my job is to make the environment nice. I only did come in New York for six months, then I went out to Las Vegas, 1977. I mean, Los Angeles, and I did the Tonight Show. I think really maybe too early, but I was working immediately after. Remember back in the day, you did the Tonight Show. You were working the next day. That's right. You did the Tonight Show. You're working. I, I used to watch David Brennan and all those guys. I did the Tonight Show. The next day, I was working for Natalie Cole, opening for Natalie Cole outside 17,000 people uh, at the Southern Illinois University. And I've been working since then. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You said you did The Tonight Show too soon. Now, for those of you who might not know how it worked back then, there was a legendary producer named Jim McCauley Jim who McCauley. booked The Tonight Show and booked some of the greatest comedians ever. Tell us how your trajectory went with Jim. Carol Leifer, who was on the podcast a while back, said that she auditioned for Jim 23 or 24 uh, times before she got The Tonight Show. What about you? One time. One time. Was that the, uh, you know, well, we should be at the, at the comedy store. So I go up and Jim comes up and says, you want to do the show? And, you know, you couldn't say no at the time. Maybe I should have said, but I said, uh, but Jim went over all the material with me and he did make sure you had four sets before you did one and that was good but I think had I done it a year later I mean I had 12 sets you can never go on too late but I made I, I, I it was good that I did it so when you look at your first tonight show and you Ooh. watch that set you're Ooh. not happy with it Ooh. Ooh, I told Jerry the other day at Seinfeld I said I saw my tonight show my first tonight show it wasn't good even though it was good, but as I look at it today, I'm, of course, much more professional. Why would they put a comedian back on? You did The Tonight Show probably, if I'm not mistaken, over 30 times. Any time. You? you ask any comedian that see that, that, that will view their earlier work, go, oh, my God, that's just terrible. It's almost like listening to your voice, you know, especially your voice when you listen to you. <laughs> go like, oh, my God, that is gross. That is terrible. <laughs> Have you heard your voice? You sound like an idiot. <laughs> Have you heard your, I'm talking to you. I know you are. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I sound like an idiot. 
I think most people don't like their voice. But I love people with great voices. You, you actually sound great. I you don't do. like my voice. You, you sound great. When I edit this podcast, I do it with earplugs in. You hear that, right? Yes. No, I but try. you have a great voice. You know, Very, very, very nice voice. You articulate very well. Do you do radio? You can do radio. I, you th- I have a great face for radio. No, that's not true. No. You, in that case, you, you're not going to be working at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, George came here with one of his representatives. You gotta, you gotta know when a show is going well when the guy is laying prone on the floor of a hotel room, saying "fuck it, I'm giving up. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a nap here." That's my <laughs> manager. He's with me all the time, everywhere I go. Isn't that nice? Oh my God Almighty! What's your manager's uh, full name, please? I don't know. I just met him. <laughs> Just we're at the comedy festival. This is where you learn who people are. He says, "You are, uh, yeah, I need a manager." Come I on. can't believe up to, somebody he, signed you during the festival. That's said, exciting. He, I said, "I'm going up to Barry Cash room." He said, "Oh, you need a manager. You need to be represented. <laughs> You're going up to that guy." And he said to me, "His voice sucks." <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I am the most imitated manager in show business. It's horrifying. Everybody does an impression of me. I can't stop them. Is that right? What did you do before you legal law, right? What no, you, no. I started as a stand-up comic, and I didn't make it. So this I is just true. You were out of Boston area where that's the smart right. comics yes. come from, right? Yes. All of the smart comics come out of Boston. Stephen Wright, Paula Poundstone. Yeah. How, what is his cadence? Stephen Wright, how much slower can you get? <laughs> Paula Poundstone is out of Boston? Paula Poundstone. Thought she was out of San Francisco. Bobcat Goldthwaite, Lenny Clark, who was on Rescue Me, Louis yeah. C.K., yeah, Bill I Burr. His, I just did his show. Bill Burr, Bill Burr is crazy, man. Yeah, Dane oh Cook. Oh, my God, uh, Dane all Cook, the, yeah. All these you people. had the opportunity of managing uh, Dane Cook. Yes, did I did, 17 years. 17 years. How long have I been managing you? Oh, it's going to be about, as soon as he leaves, he's over there. <laughs> When he falls asleep, I've got the papers. He has the paper right here. All I got to do is sign it. He has the pen here. You're prepared, aren't you? I am prepared. I got the pen. I got the contract. I got the blood. I got the fingerprints. You're talking too loud. I got the urine specimen. You're going to wake him. You're talking too loud. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He just turned over. (laughs) I have so many things to ask. Go ahead and ask me. I got nowhere to go. I got to put a set together for tomorrow night. I am not ready to do my special for the gala. Oh, you're you saw me work last night did you yes and I don't, I i'm not I'm i will not. be honest with you you're about 75 percent there you're going to pull a few things out of that one oh, you must yeah because i i'm only doing seven minutes yeah. you saw me do like 18 yeah. last night yeah. Yeah. yeah but i can see what you're going to do i know what you're going to close with i know what you're going to open with i know some key things in the beginning but there's some things there that i don't know what you're going to do yet but okay. we'll figure it out when i manage you um <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding well we did change because hillary was on last night so you know so we're going to maybe throw in something that happened during a Democratic, Democratic convention. Fun question for you. A little known fact about you. Okay. There was a wedding where you were a best man at. I'd love to know what your speech was. You're probably talking about Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, that is Christmas correct. Day, December 25. 1999. 1999. Because I was partying like it's 1999. And Prince, you know, that song and... And, got, and Prince came, you know, we just lost Prince last year. And I was lucky enough to have him uh, attend my show in Las Vegas. Isn't that nice? He came to my birthday party. He was my surprise guest at my birthday party, Prince. 
Wow. Fantastic. I didn't know he was there. He was, I just happened to look down. He was hugging my leg. You know, he's just that short and I didn't know. Did he perform? Uh, no, he didn't perform. He Did just he came do up the splits stage. in front of you? He didn't do, you know, that's why he was in pain doing all of those splits and things like that as he got older. And that's probably why he was on the drugs. But the wedding was 1999 with Jerry Seinfeld. I was the best man. And I told Jessica that I, uh, we had been best friends for over 20 years, that uh if she got half the love that I got from my roommate, she was going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they've been married for 15 years now. Isn't that nice? It's amazing. Most, most people don't last that long. Don't I know it. See, that's what I'm telling you. He's a, he's a good guy, and I wish everybody had a friend like Jerry Seinfeld. You said something roommates. Yeah, we are roommates for 13 years. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. Well, you know, we both are working, and, uh, and it was a studio, too. Who had the right side of the futon and who had the left side? <laughs> no, we had a sofa and we had a bed. And the sofa would, you know, back in the day, the sofa would turn into a sofa bed. And so. who had that and who had the bed? I had the sofa. Well, he was there like five years before me, so he had the bed. I had the sofa bed. Yeah. Incredible. And we were young. You know, young people were uh, crazy. We had some great experiences. Somebody broke into the place and stole a brand new TV I had bought, a Sony. You know, back in the day, if you had a Sony TV, that was it, man. They broke into our, our studio. It was very unusual because most people breaking through the door. These guys bro broke in through the wall. <laughs> they went in the wall to made a hole big enough through the wall to bring their television out. And back then, televisions weighed as much as a bed. More, yeah. Remember, we went down to Uncle Steve's in New York City <laughs> and got a big TV. I guess they must have weighed 80 pounds easily, right? Oh, probably more than that. It was a Sony Trinitron. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, we still, we're still friends, Seinfeld. And like I said, I was the best man in this wedding. I've served as the honorary. Uh, uh, the baby boys would uh, have a brisk. Uh, I have to hold one leg when the baby boys were for the brisk. And, uh, and Do you bury before. the foreskin? I'm sorry? Do you bury the foreskin? or does I don't know. They say you're, you're supposed to faint when that happens. Nobody <laughs> told me. But, uh, you know. I just we're don't like those events because then they have the whole the food afterwards. There's some waiter coming by. Would you like some clams on the half shell? Right. No, I would not want clams on the half shell. I just saw the baby lose his skin. But what, what happened was they get the baby drunk. They give the baby a piece of gauze and just load it up with wine and give it to the baby. And they don't tell the baby. Just get drunk and the baby's just laughing. And all of a sudden, I don't know where, they rip that skin. And, and, and the ladies just go like, ah, people are crying, you know. I, I know they're crying because they see the future being yeah. damaged. But uh, <laughs> the baby's rewarded after that. And, uh, that's one thing. I, you mentioned some uh, something earlier about the bar mitzvah. That's one thing I like about the Jews, that you have a culture that is so wonderful. A boy turns 13, a girl turns 13, and they're rewarded with gifts from the other Jewish friends. Nobody else does that. When I say rewarded in the... In the, in the, in the uh, not segments and increments of 18s. $18, 180. That's right. 1800. But, and, and, and the kid is rewarded. So, therefore, that's why a lot of you Jewish guys are so successful. By the time that 13 and that um, amount grows when the kids get out of high school, there's a college fund there. That is so nice. Have you thought of converting? When I, I can't be 13 again, but it would be nice. I think that's one of the greatest uh, parties you could ever have is a bar mitzvah. 
Have you thought about adult circumcision? I do need it because I'm uh, just just cut take an inch off, you know. Jesus Christ! If I took an inch off, I'd have an any. Well, I'm just uh, any. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm uh, I'm gonna lose some weight because Doctor Oz said that <laughs> it's a scientific fact that every 35 pounds you lose, you can gain an inch <laughs> on your telewacker. And real? Is that true? Yeah. And so I'm right now. I'm dieting. I need to lose 105 pounds. <laughs> George, I'm being serious. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. You look it up. Mac, Google it. My my producer just lost sixty pounds. How many? Now you know why. Max, how many inches have you gained on your tallywhacker? Inch, two inches. Two inches. Yeah, that's see? amazing. Yeah, because before then, a friend of mine, uh, AJ Jamal, he says you have a, a weenie do. You know what a weenie do is? No. When your st- stomach sticks out further than your weenie do, that's when you know you have a problem. God, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If your stomach sticks out further than your weenie, do you have a problem? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I like to go way, way back, George. Let's go way back. We're this is go the way back machine. Way back to Sherman and Peabody. Sherman and Peabody, Sherman. And take me back to uh, where you grew up, your family, the socioeconomic situation, and what it was like growing up in those times and then what was your first inspiration to getting into the business ladies and gentlemen my name is george wallace born july 21 back in the late in the 50s and uh born to george and mary lou wallace as you said before in the 50s 46 what are you high 46 listen i'm telling this story (laughs) no no, i'm fucking this cat you just hold his tail now I want to share something with you. He's going to laugh at me. I don't remember hearing George ever swear or being this like. Isn't that the truth? Listen to me, Barry. It's unbelievable. I, want to curse. I it's can't time believe to curse. this. You this, can't is believe. Like, this is like nothing I've ever heard of him I before. I want to curse. He's and changing I, brands. I want to curse, and, I, and, I, and it's, it's, it's so exciting. It's time to curse, you know? <laughs> I want to, you know, you know, I want to be like Bernie Mac, and I want to try to tell you, these motherfuckers ain't going to tell me what to do. You know, I see when I started comedy, right? Then I get back into your story. So we only had three networks. You remember NBC, and oh, you had to be clean. So we studied. So it is harder and more uh, to be clean and do comedy. You see, some guys now the the subject is uh, uh, motherfucker. The, the 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 middle is motherfucker, and the punchline is motherfucker, motherfucker. So I. I've been doing it clean, and it's it's harder to do it, but and I can do it, and I love doing it clean. But I sometimes I think I want to cuss. I'm cussing on this because everybody that listens on the internet, they curse, they cuss. Let's see, see. When I'm, I'm cool with it. I support you. I endorse this message. But of course, and say when I'm so George Wall- ABC, then a lot of people are clean. Joel Osteen may be listening. Why did your parents name you after a racist governor from Alabama? My real name, and I only said this like four or five times in life, my real name is Henry Wallace. My dad is George Wallace. There's nine George Wallaces in my family. So when I got to Los Angeles, when I wanted to join the union, that was already a Henry Wallace. So I had to change my name. I said, well, let's, let's do George. Make it a good name. Because my nickname was Governor. Governor George Wallace, the racist. So if we got nine George Wallaces. Let's make George Wallace a good name. And I've succeeded. Now... If you pay $100 to go see a TV show, you know it's me, the real George Wallace. I'm the real George Wallace now. How about that? 
Did you ever meet the other George Wallace? I did not, but I met his daughter and son. Came to my show at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas many years ago. And it was nice to meet them. Well, you know, he was not a racist until uh, he wanted to win as governor. He had to become a racist with the racist uh, people in Alabama. But George Wallace, born in Atlanta, Georgia. My mom was a housekeeper. My dad was a butcher. And growing up in the house, it was all about fun and laughter. I had parents. Let me make that perfectly clear first. I grew up, I can't imagine not ever having a father at home. That is a major problem of what's going on today. But to have a father at home and a good father that was strict and taught you respect. They taught us respect, no hatred, uh, never been racist or anything like that. Uh, and it was just always happiness in the house. Having a TV in the house and watching Red Skelton. I was six years old. Always wanted to be a comedian since watching Red Skelton. Red Skelton's like, famous routine, if you ever can Google it, Juggler's Gin. Is that right? Yes. Who did it? Clem Cadillahopper did Red do it? I thought it was Red. Okay, because he Clem did Clem was his character. Well, that, the characters, yeah, yeah. He was so good. And then I had Milton Berle. I had Johnny Carson. I had Richard Pryor. I had uh, uh, Moms Mabley, Jackie Moms Mabley. I had Judge Pickmeat Markham. I had uh, Flip Wilson. So I had, a, you know, between the, uh, the black and the white community, just anybody telling jokes, just one of Phyllis Diller uh, and, and Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, that's what made The Tonight Show. Comedians would come on and have fun. Every Thursday you could count on some comedian on The Tonight Show. And Joan Rivers, all of those guys. And, just, just, and I would take the jokes when I was a kid, go back to school the next day and make everybody happy. And then that made me happy. When I see happy people, it makes me happier. So then I went on. I said, I want to be a comedian since six years old. Then I, I got out of high school, went to school in Akron. My mom, first of all, my mom passed when I was 16. My dad passed when I was 18. I was on my own. I still wanted to be a comedian. Went to college off University of Akron. Let's back up here. So you lose both your parents within two years. Yeah. How did you survive that? By their teaching and parenting. They taught respect, first of all. Uh, my mom taught us how to, they used to say, I'm not always going to be around here. So they taught you how to cook, how to clean, how to sew, how to do everything. But what they taught was to learn. My dad always taught me, he said, son, life, he said, get all the education you can. That's what he always taught us. And you can make it. Get all the education you can because life is like a shit sandwich. The more bread you have, the less shit you got to eat. And so I knew to go to school, even though they were uh, passed on. I went to school, University of Akron, Akron, Ohio, first degree in transportation. Now, you're going to look at me and say, what transportation? Are you a bus driver? And people fail to realize the number one industry in the world is transportation. People fail the, you, People don't think about where the shirt comes from, the shoes, the lights, the house, the car. Everything had to get to you through some form of transportation. There are five modes of transportation. I'm teaching you something. Look at me when I'm talking to you. They had a... Uh, <laughs> You got air, water, pipeline, rail, and trucking. Then I got a degree in that. Then I said, uh, after that, uh, I was walking out of the library, and I said, this is the last time I'm ever coming back to this damn library. And the next week I had money, like scholarship funds, and I was back in school for marketing and advertising. And then I did that, and uh, I moved to New York City to live my dream, chase my dream. And I went to New York. I, I even studied radio and television broadcasting. And then I uh, uh, was 
vice president of the world's largest outdoor advertising agency, everything at Times Square, the billboards, the spectaculars, all of the transit vehicles in the top 10 markets, not only in New York City, but Boston, Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I did that, but that's when I was uh, selling the advertising. That's when I walked into the comic strip. So a guy named Richie Tinkin, and I said, by the way, Charlie, I put them on the buses. You need to put your business in the street. Put them on the back of the bus. By the way, I have a little comedy act. They said, you do? Come in here tomorrow night and try it. That was on a Thursday. I went on Friday night, and I've been on stage ever since then. Living my dreams. Love what I do. Got the greatest job in the world. Uh, uh, done every TV show, working the movies. My goal in life was just to, well, when I first started, we just wanted to go to Las Vegas, and that's all I I never want to be any TV star, movie star, anything like that. I'm living my dream. They said once, in Las Vegas, some comedians were making, you don't even know who they are, they're making $400,000 a year. I'm going, well, hell, that's good enough for me. That's all I want. And, you know, it's not like, you know, as long as you're going up the mountain, you don't have to be at the top of the mountain because when you get to the top of the mountain, you're pretty much up there by yourself. But when you're in the middle of the mountain, you got a lot of people around you to help you go up or you can fall back down on as a pillow, as a cushion. So, um, Buddy Hackett used to tell me that in 1953, he made $175,000 a week in Vegas. 1953, that's what I'm talking, back in the day. Like when I was doing advertising back in the 70s, I pretty much had money. I had a car. I was making like $75,000 then. And, but in 53, he was making. But back then, he was the biggest comic in the world. When you worked in Vegas, you did this beautiful room that was a 500-seat room, I believe. 750. It, 750. It had the red booths in the yeah, room. Yeah, yeah, The beautiful big booths. They wanted to change that room to make it a new room with the, a theater seating. I said, no, people come to Las Vegas. I want them to see the authentic showroom where Sammy Davis Jr. worked. It's just so beautiful, that room, and you commanded the stage. I remember I went to see you there. I did a television show with Al Sharpton, believe it or not. Okay. And I, I mentored a guy. The whole goal for me was to mentor somebody who had never been on stage before and get them to write 20 minutes and perform it and open up for you. And they came in, they opened up for you, and they killed, and they yeah. got like a standing ovation. And I felt so great. And you were so wonderful to me. And, uh, and I watched you perform, and I was just blown away by how generous you were. Thank you so much. You're just much too kind. <laughs> now, granted... Obviously, every show that George did in Vegas for 10 years, he didn't sell 750 every seats. Every last show sold out. I told you I'm going to be the greatest bullshit. I'm not going to let you get away with that. So we had standing room every night. I was standing. Even the nights when I wasn't there, sold out. How many shows a week did you do there? Five nights a week, Tuesday through Saturday. Got it. I had eight days a week. Can you believe this? I would be on stage Tuesday through Saturday. Saturday night, i get off stage at 11 o'clock. I'd be on an airplane midnight. I'd be in New York City 6 o'clock the next morning. I'd be in New York Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Leave New York Tuesday at 6 o'clock, be back in Vegas at 8, be on stage at 9 o'clock. Why? Sorry? Why didn't you just give up the New York place and just relax in Vegas instead of taking that travel? I love New York. Don't you like to go home sometime? I'm home, buddy. I'm with you. Well, this is true. So that's why I would go back to New York. And also, I got to work the clubs again. It's nice to go out and work. It's still nice to work the clubs. Do your little Why jokes. would you want to go back to New York and share the couch with Jerry Seinfeld at the stage of your life? Have you ever lived in New York? New York is great. <laughs> I lived in New York for a long time. Now, Lincoln you know Towers. Why I, I had a comedy you club there. Tower? Yeah, I had a comedy club there for 17 oh, years. Man, yeah. So I lived that on you never showed up at. 
No, I'm sorry. You worked there. I don't, you came in. Did I come in? You came in I don't remember. The Boston Comedy Club. Oh, yeah, I came in there? Of course of you course. did. Of course, yes. You lived at the Boston Comedy Club. It was downtown, yeah. Yeah, and I lived yeah. at Lincoln Towers okay. uptown, uptown. On the west side, yes, yeah. of course. So, um, yeah, so I would, I would do that, and I was in Las Vegas. I went for 30 days. Turned out to be a 10-year run. And it was because of uh, my experience in advertising. Uh, you would uh, land in Las Vegas, you saw my name more than any other entertainer in Las Vegas because I knew advertising, I knew how to budget, I knew how to schedule the advertising. Even the trucks, you used to have trucks, five trucks back to back to back to back to back going down Las Vegas Boulevard. And some people say, he's such an idiot. If why you got five trucks going back to back to back to back? That's what they would always ask me. What I said to them was, you did ask about it, didn't you? That's right. The people that only have one truck, you did not say anything about them. I did it because it attracts attention. That's boy, what you got to do. You got to be different. Boy, you did more than anything else is you made sure you got the reviewers in in the preview week as much as you could. And then when you met with them afterwards, you created a wonderful impression. You gave them a great show. And whenever anybody came to Vegas and they saw the ad, the reviews for your show were extraordinary and they called you new mr vegas but not only that what i would do is every three months i would go visit the concierge at every hotel and still invite them back again invite them back always constantly because there's always people are changing jobs always making them feel and knowing what a good show it is so they can sell the show if somebody wanted to see coming right off the bat go see george wallace and then i started giving away things i wanted to be like oprah i wanted to be a rich black lady <laughs> so and uh and then i was there for 10 years and uh, we decided to it's time to very successful 10 years we made we, we didn't lose any money of what i did the first time i was there i took all the money and invested it back into the brand and to an advertise and made the show work didn't take a dime for the first six months didn't take a dime. Yep, nope. Put it all back out in the streets. You got to grow in Las Vegas. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't give. I don't care what your name is in Las Vegas. It's not about your name because your tickets are not going to be sold by your name. Your tickets got to be sold by Vegas.com or any of the, the the timeshare people. That's who buy the tickets in Las Vegas. That's why you see big acts go to Las Vegas and leave big Broadway productions and leave because they don't know how to market. It's amazing. How are you with the new media, like with Twitter and Facebook? You are used to a different kind of advertising. You were an expert at a different kind of advertising and media. And now today, there's a whole different kind of media. Have you been able to make the transition or not? Yes, it took me a while to learn because I'm old school. But my manager was adamant about changing over to social media. And the one I, here you know, sleeping on the floor? No, he's sleeping. Don't wake him up because okay. I don't want him to hear it. But, yeah, it's, and, and now we're in and, and to, uh, Facebook. I, Facebook is so much BS on so much bullshit on there. Here's what I do. I just delete, 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 delete. Something I just don't want to hear that. must explain why I didn't get a hold of you before this festival. Probably. You deleted me. If you tweet me, I'll, you, I, I'm good at tweeting. Okay. Okay, I was voted top 25 funniest tweeters by Rolling Stone magazine. And now... Number one by Playboy. I didn't even know they were still in business. <laughs> must must have been the pictures of your tallywhacker that got them going. My tallywhacker and Playboy is on page 59, 62, 63. <laughs> in my whole life from birth until now, I have never used the word tallywhacker until today. Well, that's an older expression, but uh, uh, life has been great. I'm the most successful person you've ever met. It's not how much money you make, it's how you enjoy your life while you're living. I can do anything. And, I, you know, I'm teaching kids now, 
the new thing I'm teaching kids now, make enough money, live your dream, uh, honor your essence. If you have a passion for something, go for it and work until you get that F you money. F you money is the greatest money in the world. Nobody can tell you what to do, when to do it, or how to do it. I have F you money. I had a wonderful time. What's the biggest check you ever got for one gig? 129. Why 129? Is that a Jewish thing in 18s? No, you asked me what's the biggest check? 129,000. And when you got that, did you say, finally, I got fuck you money? No, it took long. You got no one hundred twenty-nine thousand. Not fuck you, money. It is for There's me. Something wrong with you? <laughs> you got to make millions before you have. Uh, you got to make millions. Well, no, you got to make. No, You're I, the I, first I'm person who has I'm called wrong. me an idiot and said, "What's wrong with me?" It's awful. I thought I was bringing you in. You're going to be the nicest guy to me. How and you're, old were you? You are a mind? mean, mean, large man to me. You're horrible. How I old were you when your mind just got up and walked away from you, Barry? <laughs> There's something wrong with you. You have crushed me like a bug during this interview. I could give a shit. Let me tell you something. I could give a rat's ass. Did you hear me do that joke last night? I could give a rat's ass. Why is a rat's ass less valuable than other parts of the rat, rat's body? Huh? People say stupid shit, don't they? A little birdie told me. I heard a new term the other day. A murder of crows. I never knew heard that before. A murder means like a flock of sheep. You look at your manager shaking and say, it's a lot of, I got a lot of shit to learn, man. A murder of crows. Why did they put that on the blackbirds? <laughs> this, this is not right. Because doves don't really murder. They just cry. This is what it <laughs> sounds like when doves cry. Famous guy named Prince wrote that song. Love that guy. He's dead. They cremated him the next day. I think that was a cause of death. Cremation? <laughs> Let's talk about the people that you've lost in your life that are great entertainers and the people that have made the mark on you and they're no longer with us. Do you mind sharing a few stories of some people that you remember from the past? Ooh, let's hit one right now. Yes. Gary Shandling. Please. I was at the memorial. It was amazing. Oh, my God. I did not make it. Gary Shandling, what a great guy and a great friend. Uh, We were running partners. Gary Shandling was such a great friend of mine. We ran the street together and... uh, uh, we did some writing together, and then as we both became successful, you know, you don't see each other as much because you're going in one direction, and I was always on the road. He chose to stay in and do Larry Sanders and shows like that, and uh, uh, that's one guy on the list, you know. But I worked with Natalie Cole. I worked with a lot of people. Muhammad Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali. I was friends with Muhammad Ali. So many people. I just got. I was at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. Um, uh, of course, my mom and dad and my parents and and everybody that died before me. A lot of people died before me. I wrote for Red Fox. He died. And I, I didn't know him that well, but I did know him. Uh, but he did have an influence on me. All right. Six degrees of separation, George. I'm going to mention a name of somebody and you say whatever comes to mind. Jay Leno. Fantastic guy. As nice as you can be. Work, work, work. Workaholic. Workaholic did- is either working on jokes or working on a car. Great guy. Nothing bad you can say about Jay Leno. Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, what a wonderful guy. From day one, I think I knew Judd, maybe the first day he walked on stage in Los Angeles. Great guy, now he's producing and, and making great film, and, and he's just a good guy. And I still think he's a kid. 
Richard Pryor. Greatest comedian to ever walk the earth. But although I'm walking, I'm, although I'm watching Bernie Mac now, and he's becoming, I'm like, it's Bernie Mac. Richard Pryor was the first black guy that like uh, really have substance and 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 um, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but uh, uh, social uh, ills and tell them how we were living and just uh, comedy into the the black lives and and, and white people could uh, relate to it. So Richard Pryor is the greatest comedian, but Bernie Mac is, if you watch him and his cadence now, and go back and look at some of his work, and you're going like, Bernie Mac is pretty good. And somebody's going to say, well, he was no Richard Pryor, but just take a look at him. Watch the good. first Def Jam that yeah. Bill Bellamy was on where he said, I ain't scared of you, motherfucker. I ain't scared of you, motherfucker. Incredible. Right? Incredible. the colors he wore, Bernie Mac was great. Uh, the Coen Brothers. Wonderful. I did a movie with them. Everybody would like to work with the Coen Brothers. I did a movie called The Lady Killers. And uh, these guys know how to make a movie, man. You know, you shoot so many. You go movies, they do like sometimes 10 to 12 different shots. Okay, let's reshoot this. Let's redo it. These guys are quick, man. Are you, they would ask the actor, are you satisfied? Because we are. And they would move on. And they come in on the budget, and they got it done. And they just wonderful guys. Work. People would work with the Corn Brothers just to say, I was in a Corn Brothers film. David Letterman. David Letterman, quiet guy. Nobody still knows him to this day by himself but he's a great guy eddie like, murphy eddie murphy crazy young guy I learned a lot from him i learned eddie murphy when he was first starting we went to uh uh a record store one day tower records i think in new york city uh 66th and broadway how do you know about this that's exactly what it was because i know your history i study you listen George. to me and Pavarotti, the opera singer he was there signing books Eddie Murphy was in the store. I was in the store, and I heard a big corruption over in the back of the store. It was Eddie Murphy making noise while Pavarotti was signing books, and they were trying to quiet him down. And it just like he was just, I don't give a damn. I don't just make a noise like that. And uh, come to find out, it's kind of like it was done on purpose. It made the news. It's kind of like, it's okay. And he said, it's okay, you know. Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson, very quiet. Not sure he was very uh, uh, into black people. Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Uh, didn't know much about him. I just know. Uh, well, you did the telethons. Well, he did. I know that, you know, doing the telethon. for, And I did the tel telethon with him many a time. I know. You know? But he was kind of quiet. Uh, uh, one time I gave a lot of money, and he was just really so happy. And at the end of his career, I didn't give as much money. And he went, okay, George, while the stickers I'm going just put it. <laughs> <laughs> Magic Johnson. Oh, great guy. Go to church with him every Sunday. He's a good friend of mine. Love Magic Johnson. Uh, 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 giving guy. The late Robin Williams. The late Robin Williams. Robin used to call me the Reverend. I used to follow him on stage. I used to follow Robin Williams and Richard Pryor on stage at the Comedy Store every night. What a great guy Robin was. Robin was a quiet. Uh, uh, I found out last night. You know, he was known for borrowing material when he first started. Oh, uh, but he was still the, one of the greatest of all time. His mind was just quick, quick, quick. Great guy. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. I met him once, you know, from what I can remember. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> Listen, the people in the industry knew that Bill Cosby had all of these girls, right? It was a known story. Everybody knew that. I, I think it was even in his contract that he had to have certain girls back there. But we didn't know about the drug part. And I feel sorry for him that his career ended like that. But I really feel bad about that. And, uh, and then I was thinking uh, maybe he didn't do it. But when he walked out, Going to court one day, he had a cane and he was blind. All of a sudden, I'm going, "Oh, he's full of shit now." Cosby, you know. So, 
the truth is the truth. Jerry Seinfeld. Idiot. <laughs> idiot. Idiot. Like I said, best man in his wedding. I'm the father of his kids. He's an idiot. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld is a great guy. He's taught me a lot. Uh, I've taught him a lot. I'm glad I, I haven't talked to him today, and uh, uh, I'm sure I will. I'm going to mention his name was brought up by yours truly. He's going to go, oh, that guy. <laughs> but he's a great guy, and I wish everybody had a friend like Jerry Seinfeld. He's done wonderful, huh? The number one sitcom of all times. Now he reinvented himself with uh, uh, Comedian in Cars Getting Coffee. We did the most expensive uh, most expensive uh, Comedian in Cars Getting Coffee in Las Vegas. He came to do it uh, with me. Uh just great, and I, uh, like I said, forty years, and his family is great. The kids are great. Uh, my best friend. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Working, just working in Las Vegas. My private moment could be any night and every night. I just love what I do. Uh, proudest moment in show business. Man, I had some great things that happened to me from uh, William Shatner coming to the show to Prince coming to the show, coming up on stage to Tom Jones, Chris Rock, Chris Tucker. I had the show in Las Vegas where everybody would come and visit me, Vegas like it used to be. So many proud moments. I've been to Robin Island when Nelson Mandela was incarcerated. I, like I said, I was at, uh, it's just so many great things, meeting Muhammad Ali. Uh, uh, when I leave here, I can think of so many other things. It's, it's been so many proud moments. Biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? The biggest disappointment in show business? I don't know because I'm still having fun. I'm still learning. Okay, last question. What advice would you have for the young comedian growing up in an area where maybe things weren't comedic? Maybe doing odd jobs, maybe being in transit, Maybe something they didn't know what they were doing. And you've seen so many comedians, so many great people come up, so many young people that became superstars. What are the qualities that somebody needs to have to get to the next level? If you want to be a comedian, just be true to yourself. You know, it's a lot of work. And I want to tell you the most important thing. I'll make this short because I could talk forever. This is the most important question of the this whole podcast. This is the podcast. most important answer. All comedians out there, if you want to be a comedian, make sure you're true to yourself, make sure you're ready to work, and make sure you enjoy what you do. Enjoy your life. But here's the most important thing. If you can put up with bullshit, because 80% of being an entertainer, there's a lot of bullshit and a lot of detours. If you can put, it's, it's pretty much, you know, it doesn't matter how big you are. There's going to be some bullshit. People trying to stop you, pull you down. And if you love what you do and... You achieve a level of success, just knocking that bullshit out of the way. You, don't be jealous of what other people are doing. Uh, so many comedians going, why did he get the job? Don't worry about that. Each career has a different direction. Be you. Be honest to yourself. Honor your essence. Get out there and work. Have a good time. Make people happy. Make people uh, laugh. And when you make people laugh, like I said, laughter is the greatest medicine in the world. It's, it's free medicine. And enjoy it. Just make sure you want to do. And if you want to be a comedian, that's a, listen to me. You can't want to be a comedian. It's I got to be a comedian. And when you say I got to be a comedian, that means and no bullshit's going to stop me. George Wallace, you have been a force 
of nature. Thank you so much for doing this. I you know have you been did. a pain in the ass, Barry. <laughs> and I didn't go behind your back, and I told you right in your face, you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> you told me to come up here for 50 minutes. I've been here for two fucking hours. <laughs> I got to pee. I'm old. You know, an old man has to pee after 30 minutes. Thank and you. I did pee sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, George. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Casey Kingsley from Longmont, Colorado. Congratulations, Casey. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on the real Johnny G. Title reads, Sarah Siegel Magnus, four stars. Barry, I love the podcast. This, however, is the first miss you have had. I want to say that I am not a hater, but this girl hitched up to her husband who has unlimited resources. He's a billionaire. $40 million to blow on a bad movie is Monopoly money. I don't see the talent. I'm sorry, but this is one bad podcast out of 25. Not a bad record overall. Well... The real Johnny G, thank you so much. I don't think Sarah Siegel Magnus will thank you, but hey, what can I say? Congratulations. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.